Okay, so this poem is called Diagnosis, and it's from my forthcoming collection with Rare Swan Press, a company based in Switzerland. Diagnosis. One Sunday, we were entertaining cider and spiced nuts. Outside, marmalade leaves lay on the lawn. Dad arrived unannounced. In the yard, stood on a stepladder between nettled snarls of the hedge trimmer. Your granddad's not well. He doesn't have long. Hello and welcome to Poetry Non-Stop. I'm Patrick Widdis and you just heard a poem from today's guest, Alan Parry, a poet, playwright and poetry editor from Merseyside. He has a new collection out called Echoes, as he mentioned, and has a lot more going on besides. Here's Alan to tell us a bit more about that poem. In all honesty, it's a, a completely true story, except for the cider. <laughs> um, this collection is the first time I've explored at length, mind at length, my own personal life, my own personal experience. I've said this uh, a couple of times to people I know recently and in other interviews that I've been given in the promotional work that I don't for one minute believe that I am anything like interesting enough for somebody to read prose of mine. Nobody's ever going to read an autobiography. Nobody's ever going to write a biography about me, that's for sure. However, uh, I, I do believe that I have some stories to tell, and I think that I have the capacity to tell them poetically, take little snapshots, and that is a true story. And I thought it was a good place uh, to open this collection. So uh, there must have been um, a lot more to that experience than ended up in the poem. How did you sort of come to this very, uh, very good very concise poem well again this is typical of my style it really is many years ago when i i tried to write drama i tried to write comedy i tried to write songs at one point and i just used to write too much really i think it went something along the lines of a a conversation with my co-editor at broken spine paul robert mullen who when working out in china he he was working with a, a Dr. Kate Evans, and they would meet up regularly, and Kate impressed on him the importance of cutting things down to the bone and getting rid of what is needed. If it doesn't add, then it doesn't need to be there. And when Paul came back to the UK and we got together and we started talking about poetry and sort of found each other again after a number of years where we drifted apart, it was one of the one of the pieces of wisdom that he passed on to me, and I sort of took it to heart. I have this idea anyway. I'd love to be able to paint. I'd love to be able to write songs. Um, I'm very much interested in the work of people like Edward Hopper. I feel like sometimes my my poems almost look through letterboxes, look through windows, and and capture scenes and sort of fleeting moments. And it wouldn't be right, I don't think, to write long pieces about those things. So those two things combined. This idea that the only thing that I leave on the page, or, or what, sorry, I leave on the page is the only thing that ought to be there, 
and that alongside my my intention to sort of emulate what Edward Hopper does with the paintbrush um, <laughs> leaves me towards this style. And like I say, most of my stuff is is very similar. Yeah, it's quite a hard thing to judge because obviously when you have cut it down that much, it makes sense to you because you know the whole story, but uh, you don't necessarily know if it's going to make sense to the readers. No, this is true. And, and another conversation I had with Paul, I think the, the source ones have even been the same, was that we ought to be leaving the reader with an image. And that's a nice way to end a poem. And I think that most of my poems are all image and it's all open for interpretation i give very little away and and i'm aware of that it's all intentional i don't want to tell people too much i certainly don't want to tell people how to feel or how to react to my poems so i I try and leave as much to to interpretation as possible in fact in the bio that i send out with my work it tells people that i'm I'm very much interested in open ends and and nothing could be closer to the truth Yes, uh, that poem you read certainly conveys some very vivid images. And then those uh, last couple of lines are a real sting in the tail. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed. I hope your listeners enjoy. Um, It's not a pleasant story, but I I do think that that sting in the tail is something that we've all heard or we've all experienced previously at one point or another. If we haven't yet, then maybe it's in our futures. So I hope... That, that resonates. Yeah, so say so you've uh, just recently started writing about your own life. How did you come to approach that? Well, I'd tried it before, and not unsuccessfully, but I, I wasn't open to doing it too often. Let's say that. My first collection, Neon Ghosts, I think there are 24 poems, and I look inwardly, perhaps three four times and and when we launched uh, the broken spine in february late february early march of 2020 right on the cusp of the pandemic we had an in-person launch we were it was one of the last live events that i actually got to go to really fortunate we had some fantastic readers there robert shepherd was there marianne sure who i've since written with was there and so were David Hanlon, the I think he's a Welsh poet, Bristol poet. Yeah, former uh, guest the on the podcast. Is that right? Yes. There we are. But you know David. Yeah. And Ellie Horan or Elizabeth Horan from I think she's from Vermont in the States. They were touring their most recent collections. And I got to see them read and listen to just what they were writing about, uh, their honesty their openness, their willingness to go to places, and it sort of lit a fuse. And I thought, well, perhaps I ought at least attempt to to mine my personal life. And aside from that, and I feel like I'm name-dropping an awful lot here, it's not an intentional thing. There was a conversation that I had with Matthew Smith at at Blackbird Poetry, and Matthew, I think he told me that in order to maybe reach a wider audience, you can try and give your audience more of you. Because I felt... I think Matthew, because he edited originally uh, Neon Ghost, he, he read it and enjoyed it. But he was aware that many of the scenes, many of the poems were quite filmic. They looked rather film noir. Um, it created an atmosphere of a place that we can't quite go to in America, this America that we think we know. But that there were limitations with that. It was going to be finite. I couldn't continue to write in that way. 
and I had to find a new way to do it. So that conversation and hearing such good, I hesitate to say confessional poets, so it's not a nice term, I don't think, but poets who were writing about such personal stories as as David's experience as a, as a, as a gay young man and as Elizabeth's experiences that she was writing about, I think she deals with drinking alcoholic Betty, hearing them up close and personal, watching them in performance, seeing how they were received. And that sort of spurred, that sort of spurred uh, this work, definitely. Yeah, and so as you started writing about your life, were there any um, areas of your life which uh, were particularly challenging? Yeah, I mean, there's a surprise in the upcoming in the upcoming collection, and that was difficult to write. There is a a monologue within Echoes that I wrote some time ago now, and it's it's from the perspective of an an eighty year old woman. I mean, who am I to write from the perspective of an eighty year old woman? I, I I couldn't pick any eighty year old woman. It had to be somebody I knew, somebody whose life I was sort of intertwined with, and it ended up being very much a a personal story. My mother passed away in 2013 due to an alcohol-related illness. And she was survived by my maternal grandmother. And the monologue is, it explores that relationship. It explores issues with mental health, issues with alcoholism, issues with getting older and feeling lonely. And none of that was very nice. And I was aware that it wasn't very nice. I intentionally sucked all the fun out of that play. So it's quite a depressing read. It's quite a tough read, and it was an even tougher write. Yeah, um, perhaps it'll be uh, difficult giving a reader something like that, uh, something that's personal and uh, challenging. Yeah, yeah, definitely. It's been read by a number of people. It's been read at a scratch night, which was quite nice, to hear a female voice read it. Yeah, I think it took about 20 minutes to be read aloud. That was that was quite emotional. Yeah. So uh, you say that everyone has a story in them, but it can be hard to uh, know what those stories are or how to tell them. What advice would you give to other people about writing about their lives? I think you have to start with what you know. Again, this might be something I've said previously. I say it almost every day in my classroom when I'm teaching, certainly when I'm teaching creative writing. I teach students who, for whatever reason, have fallen through the net and are are resetting their GCSE English language. And one of the elements of teaching English GCSE language here in the UK is that they have to create a piece of uh, creative prose or narrative prose. And that's a struggle for many of them. And... I repeat the Daniel Kitson quote. Uh, Daniel Kitson, the the fantastic comedian, writer and comedian, uh, playwright, stand-up comedian. And he said that we spend so long as young people or even as adults telling the young people in our lives that uh, the world doesn't revolve around you, you know. But from the perspective of the young person, it most definitely does. We see everything in the world through our own eyes um, and that will inform everything that we ever do. Obviously, you'll never read a piece of literature, you'll never watch a film um, without bringing your life experience to the table. And I think that it's really important and cathartic for young people to start to try and express themselves 
but not just young people. I think it's important for anybody who's trying to become a writer. Yeah, some great points there. And that uh, leads quite nicely into your writing exercise. It does, yeah. I think everybody should attempt this at least once, is to take a photograph, a favourite photograph perhaps of themselves or, or of something from their youth and just spend, I think, up to 15 minutes free writing. And when I say free writing, this is writing without thought. It's writing without rules. I don't want people to worry about um, inaccuracies. I don't want people to worry about punctuation or spelling or even tidiness. None of that's important when they're free writing. I think you spend 15 minutes looking at a photo and just beginning to make some notes, trying to tell me what you can see, who's in the photo, perhaps what you felt at the time, what else is in the photo, what small details you can find, perhaps who took a photo. And within 15 minutes, I think if you start to do those things, I think it's reasonable to expect to come up with circa 300 words. And that would be plenty. That would, that would leave you with enough to polish, to chop away, and to just leave what's good on the page. And then when you have whatever it is you have left, maybe you're left with 50 words only. I mean, we can be that severe mm. and really cut away. Then you start to make poetic choices. Then if you're not confident doing it you're on your own, you could perhaps pull out a thesaurus. Um, you could look at employing some colours and have some poetic licence where you could change the, the colour of the T-shirt that you're wearing in the photo. And you could name it after a flower. You could start to employ metaphor. You can start to use imagery, all those types of things. But initially, using this source of your real life, your own experience, mining that, getting something from it, because I think we can all tell a story of a past experience. I think we're all capable of that, definitely. And then learning to polish it. It's all in the edit, isn't it? There's very, very few of us that write a great poem, start to finish, at the first attempt. So it's, I, I think it's about finding a way to get things on paper and beyond that, uh, learning to, to chop, learning to improve, learning to revise, and, and eventually... Well, I say I don't write poems. I say I craft for them, and it's for this very reason. I think I'd be quite happy to, to have a look at some people's efforts and to try and help them as well. If they, if they want to send them to me, then by all means, they can do that. Well, that's a great offer, and hope everyone has a go at it. It's uh, made me realise I don't have many photos from uh, when I was younger on me, but I must uh, try to dig some out. And, yeah, certainly you don't know what uh, you're going to come out with until you start writing so uh, those 15 minutes of just writing without any aim or expectations uh, really important yeah definitely I think the first time I did it I, I wrote about the chair that my granddad used to sit in he used to sit in the same same side of the sofa in a little house in Brightonley Sands, which is just on the cusp of Liverpool. Uh, I think it's probably got a Liverpool postcode. And he would sit there and he would holiday three, four times a year, usually to the same places. And he would fill his two, three, four shelves beside him with holiday snaps, with leaflets 
leaflets, so many leaflets, you know, tourist leaflets that you pick up in cafes and that type of thing. Uh, um, there was probably a groove in the chair. And then when he passed away, I thought, this is what has been left behind. This is what's for us to tidy up. And I think that was my first sort of foray into attempting a free write. And from there came a, a short story. I say a short story, probably a piece of flash fiction, less than 500 words, I would think. So that's what I got from it. Yeah, nice image, that. Uh, okay, well, it's a great exercise and some really useful advice. You've clearly been writing for a long time and uh, not just poetry. How did you first get into writing? I suppose the first thing I ever tried to create were were songs. I think I tried to write song. I've never been able to play an instrument, certainly not with any authority. I play at an open mic night occasionally and get up and embarrass myself. But that's that's where I started, uh, trying to write lyrics. I remember being very young and Dad telling me that the, the song lyrics that you hear from bands like The Specials, from artists like Bob Dylan and uh, Frank Zappa, I was probably too young to be listening to Frank Zappa, but I was. Um, those are as important as any of the music. The story is always as important. And I wanted to try and recreate that. I mean, who doesn't want to be a rock star when they're growing up? A rock star or a footballer, yeah. certainly where I'm from, up here in the northwest of England, where we have Liverpool on our doorstep, uh, two great football clubs and the Beatles. I mean, I think everybody growing up around here wants to be one of those at some point in their youth. That's a bit of a, a sweeping statement, but in, in the main, it's most likely true. Um, so that's where it started. And as I got older, you start falling for girls, and you start to get angry with the world, uh, which is quite easy to do when you grow up listening to people like Bob Dylan and Frank Zappa. A little bit of angst poetry and... Perhaps really naff romantic poetry came from there, um, or love poetry. And to be perfectly honest, I, I, I stopped for a long time. I, I had no success, no desires. I went to college and dropped out. Uh, I, I took a job that I wasn't particularly happy with when I was a young man. Um, I started going out and drinking. And writing was a long way from what I was doing and interested in, but I wasn't happy. I wasn't happy at all. And it wasn't until I'd met my wife, settled down and took the time to go back to education, really, uh, that I I picked up a pen again and, and thought, you know, what, I'm going to give this a go. And it was on an undergraduate degree module, a creative writing module that I started writing again. Um, I had to go with a couple of things. They, they were just part of the module. There were a couple of assignments where to try and write that short story, that free write, that all came from there. And I was told that my poetry was quite good. Um, I didn't believe it, and it certainly isn't good if I go back and read it. And it was, it was, however, that course leader, that module leader, who started to encourage me to, to submit to magazines. And then when you research that, you find that there are many magazines, there are many publications, and they spring up and they close all the time. So there is always a submission window open somewhere and there'll always be somebody who will pick up your work as well once you're brave and and you start sending it out to somewhere it will find a home and you begin to have successes and it kind of snowballed and that's how me and Matthew met each other Matthew Smith again from Black Bow and he enjoyed my work and he offered me a 
the opportunity to to work with him editing Neon Ghosts, which was an unbelievably kind offer, uh, one that I, I don't think I'll ever be able to repay him. Worked with me on that project and again sort of planted the seed, although I didn't act on it originally, which was to to start my own press. And so everything sort of came from uh, going back to back into education, being encouraged to send your work out and then having a couple of small successes. And then it's about who you meet and the support that I get from the writing community. Twitter, you know, has, for some people, it has an, an awful reputation. But you know what? That has completely passed me by completely passed me by i've only ever found support there i don't engage with an awful lot of the things that go on i engage with people in the writing community with poets with writers with artists and they're incredibly supportive incredibly supportive they say nice things about my work i say nice things about their work we buy each other's books we publish each other's work and it's been a wonderful thing for me and one thing I think you uh, touched on there is, is uh, broken spine. My I'm baby. About. Yeah. <laughs> it takes an awful lot of work. It takes an awful lot of work. So I, I, I suggested, didn't I, that Matthew planted the, the seed in my head. And he asked me to be a guest reader for a very early incarnation of Black Bow while they were still doing their broadsides before they went into print publication. Which I turned down at the time, I had zero confidence, zero confidence. I thought, if I'm going to do something, perhaps I ought to die on my own hill, die on my own sword. I don't want to go and work with somebody else and make a, a mess of anything. And then shortly after the conversation that I had with Matthew, what he had suggested, maybe, maybe start your own. Maybe start your own. Have you thought about it? I received a text message from Paul, who was, I think he was perhaps living half in Spain at the time, half his time was being spent in the UK. And he said, do you fancy it? Shall we have a go? And and we did. And we had, I mean, genuinely small aspirations back then. I think we said we were going to publish 12 poems a month online, which is set up a website, publish 12 poems a month. And was it for the love of it? And then you open for submissions. And then all of a sudden... 100 plus poems flood in because as soon as you start talking about it online and in the community and tagging certain people then you develop a well not a reputation as such but you certainly enter people's consciousness and then um, the work starts flooding in and very quickly we realize that we ought to do this properly we have some really good work here we have some really good work and we could continue with the idea of, of putting poems out online, just selecting 12, being extremely selective, and it would have had to be really selective. But we also believe strongly in the democratisation of poetry and supporting new writers, supporting emerging writers, and lifting people who were going to be otherwise unread and rewarding them because we were, we're not in a position to reward people financially so we decided that a nice reward and certainly something that Paul and I feel really strongly about is to have a print product and that's why we ended up putting out that first collection and it has snowballed it ha it really has snowballed uh, we've had some fabulous writers work with us we've had some fabulous guest readers work with us We've got a gentleman who is running our website and we had the first incarnation, which was basically just a submission page and 
and a little photo of a book saying, please go to PayPal and buy one of our books. And he, he built a second website for us. And once we had that, we had a platform to start doing other things as well. And we would approach prominent writers and other writers and give them site space. We've done some fabulous interviews as part of our dog ear features. And poets and writers that are only human. Even people like you, Jericho Browns, and uh, people like your your Andrew McMillan's, your Helen Mortz, you send them an email, they might just reply and say, yeah, we'll speak to you. It's astonishing, really. It's, uh, I think it started with, with Henry Normal. I knew Henry Normal was a poet. I've been a fan of his for a long time, since back in the 1990s when he created The Royal Family with Caroline Hearn and, and Craig Cash. I knew that he was writing poetry. I also knew that he had been working with Steve Coogan. And when I sent him an email via his contact uh, page on his website, I never believed for one moment that he would reply. And within five minutes, I had a reply accepting an interview with me, which was just phenomenal. And from there, it really started to spread. It was like, well, if Henry Normal, who's won a BAFTA, he's won a BAFTA, and he's saying yes to me, where can I take this? What what else can we do? And we have giant aspirations, we really do, to continue publishing chapbooks, to get involved in community projects, to have live events, to review live events. That's something that we've started this week, hopefully, or this month that we intend to do. Not just print on the page. We, I mean, we love art in all its guises, in all its guises. We love literature in all its guises. I think that's what it is. Computer games, we've done computer games, we've done live streaming of, of narrative computer games. We've hosted online open mic events. We have published flash fiction. We have published uh, prose. We have intentions to, to get bigger and get bigger. And you know what? One day, maybe, if everything sort of plays out nicely, it'll become a career for me. Uh, um, and I'll be able to leave the classroom behind. That sounds awful, doesn't it? I've only just started <laughs> teaching a couple of years ago, but I, I very much enjoy what we do. It'd be it'd be great to, to go out and, and to be able to do it professionally. And and that's where the broken spine is. Yes, uh, exciting. And uh, I'll definitely put a link on the blog so people can uh, keep up with that. When it comes to publishing work, what do you look for? What really uh, excites you? There are things that we we dislike, and we're quite firm about that. We would never publish a poem that rhymes. Not it 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 does not ring our bell one bit. I would never publish what we what I would describe as dirge. I would never publish anything that is woe me. I think that there are stories to tell, definitely. But no, I think that those two things specifically we would avoid. Like the plague, really. And we make that explicit on our website. However, aside from that, what we do like, we like a sense of place. We like to be um, shocked and surprised. And we like to become excited by photographs and images as much as we do by the writing and the language choices and the, the use of form, the use of white space, all of those things. We find them really interesting. And we've published an awful lot of different things. I'm an awful lot of writers, new and old, established and emerging. And we don't really have, I don't think, I don't think we have a set style. I don't think there's anything that 
you could say that's going to be a broken spine poem. It, it really could be anything. We published a menu in one of our in one of our collections, a menu. Uh, I trained with I trained to teach with a gentleman who wrote it, and he performed it at our open our our launch for that opening edition of the Broken Spine, and it blew me away. It really did. It was irreverent. It was silly. It was funny, and we we found a home for that. It was it was lovely, but it's nothing like anything else we publish. So it's more what we would avoid and then what we like, and we like all sorts of things. And uh, you even published one of mine uh, in one of your collections. You did, and nice you know, the title has escaped me. Can you remind me the title? Um, I was just trying to remember what it was myself. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, that makes me feel an awful lot better. If you can't remember, what chance have I? <laughs> Um, yeah, but uh, it's nice being a small part in uh, the venture so far, and uh, I hope it uh, continues to go from strength to strength. Thank you very much. I think we've been uh, chatting for a while now. We should uh, hear enough of your poems. We probably should, shouldn't we? Then I will read the next poem from the next poem from Echoes. This poem's called November. This is not so much a true story, but these are things that I remember seeing, not all in one day, but certainly um, over a period of time when I was waiting at the bus stop on my commute home from my previous job before I went to train to teach. Like I said earlier, I don't write poems. I believe that I craft poems. So I probably wrote this line by line over a period of six months, uh, kept it in my notebook or kept it on my notes app on my phone. I'm going to say that quietly when, we, when it's going to be poets and writers that are listening to this. Um, yeah, they're very, very much into the tactile writing, aren't they? Um, but this one's called November. Half a dozen pale schoolgirls glide past a barber shop, a funeral director's, an out-of-town boutique or stud earrings and lip gloss. And day is failing. The green pickle hedgerows drip wet with rain and streetlights flit to life, illuminating the sleek dolphin grey pavement. Cat falters on a garden wall. Behind a bus shelter, where the girls wait nervous and scared, a well-dressed man stumbles in a puddle of smashed glass. Some boys whistle. From a second-storey window across the street, the music of the oversexed, but they are muffled by the thin shrill of a halting bus. Yeah, it's uh, beautifully put together. Um, a lot of largely mundane details, but uh, all combined together, it uh, creates a, a lasting image. Thank you. It's the mundane that really excites me, to be perfectly honest. Why I came to love the mundane, I think, was when I was reading people like Stan Barstow, James Joyce Dubliners, which is just the most beautiful collection, the most beautiful collection. Evelyn in Dubliners is the most fantastic short story. And, you know, nothing happens. Nothing happens. She parts with her boyfriend and that's it. It's about inertia. It's about nothingness. 
Um, Alan Bennett will write about the everyday. Stan Barstow writes about the everyday. Alan Stilato writes about the everyday. I think I read, I'm going to get this title wrong now, and it's incredibly embarrassing. The hippos were boiled in their tanks by Kerouac and Burroughs. And from what I remember about that story, nothing happens. I mean, it's a true story. It was written um, after a friend of theirs, I think, told them that they had committed murder. And rather than report it, they wrote the novel. But it didn't see the light of day for many, many years, probably because it isn't the best of novels, but it's one of my favourites. It really is. And the reason it's one of my favourites is because nothing happens. There is what's like 200 pages of sitting in living rooms getting drunk and arguing about whether they're going to join the navy or not and then you have this one incident and that's pretty much it it's the boring detail that you can get mileage out of that excites me my favorite sitcom that i because i'm a, a bit of a comedy geek a bit of a nerd for sitcoms my favorite sitcom is probably steptoe and son Again, not politically correct anymore, but in terms of how it's crafted and how it's put together, the amount of life that can be found from essentially what is two people sat in a room. I think it ran for how many series? It ran for years and years and years. And it was just two people who didn't get on spending too much time together. That was it. Porridge is another favourite of mine. Two men in a room. Red Dwarf, which is porridge in space, essentially, Nothing. It's just about relationships. It's about people. It's about conversations and listening in. And what I described earlier as Edward Hopper sort of looking through windows and looking through letterboxes and little snapshots of life. And that's where that's what excites me. So great the uh, quirks and the beauty you can find uh, when you look at things a bit more closely. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah, uh, have you got anything else on the horizon? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm working. It, I mean, it's a broken spine project, but I'm I'm working on bold art scene at the moment. We've recently started a Kickstarter. We're trying to raise funds to put out this collection of masculine themed artwork, which was born out of a mutual love of Stu Buck and myself's um, sort of obsession with Andrew McMillan's work and with Lad Lit from the 90s, that crisis of masculinity that sort of occurred in British literature, definitely in the late 1990s, early 20th, 21st century, sorry. And I'm trying to bring that to fruition. I'm also working with Katie Jenkins and and Dave Hanlon, friend of the podcast, on that project, they're guest reading for me. And we're sat on a lot of good work. We've got to get back to those to those artists um, when we've made our final decisions. That will hopefully happen uh, soon. And, I mean, the goal is certainly by the time this, this goes out that those writers and artists will have heard from me. And I'll be in a better position to to bring that to fruition in whatever form. And if it doesn't go to print, which is not ideal, we do have other options open to us. But yeah, documenting that is incredibly important to me. It was part of my research when I undertook my master's degree. I have a gay son who 
is one of those people that I mentioned before that isn't into sports and comes from the Northwest. He did want to be a rock star for us sometime because he was here quite long, big ACDC fan. But uh, no, he, he wasn't into sports. And I think that and my little research into the, pro- into the project and, of course, where we are in the world today, all that's important to me. And I think that there are many, many different images of masculinity. Men, rightly so, often get a really bad rap, deservedly so. But bold isn't just about men. Bold is about masculinity and how it changes in different settings um, for different races, for different genders, for different sexualities and all those types of things. And um, I wanted to create artistic documents recording it. Yeah, it sounds like a huge undertaking, but uh, definitely a sort of important thing to be doing. And uh, yeah, good luck with all that. Thank you very much. Um, okay, well, I think you've got uh, one more poem to finish with. I have, yeah. I said earlier, didn't I, about the importance of leaving people on an image. I also touched on my mum. My mother died in 2013. She was an alcoholic. Um, she was out of touch of her family. And, and after she passed away, my dad and I, uh, my dad was... Um, and my mum were divorced. But we went to tidy the house to clean it out. And this is that story. So there's a part in this that doesn't sound believable that sometimes makes people laugh. It makes me cry when I think about it too hard. But I've, I've used poetry in this sense um, as some type of catharsis, I suppose, some type of therapy. And this poem is called Removal. In the bedroom, pools of wax time grown cold and hardened. Tempered December windows lose their nerve, blood on the floor dry like bones. A net of rotten oranges on the worktop. I'm checking pillboxes. A man in a gown flounces in, decrepit and fleshy, He's brandishing a flying pan, screaming, police! I explain, I'm the son. He fingers a photograph of her, under laburnum's sun, bouncing off her teeth, blows, blossom, kisses and leaves. Brown envelopes and floors scratched red, halfway suicide. Refuse to cry. That was Alan Parry. Check out poetrynonstop.com for links to his book Echoes and his broken spine venture, along with details of his writing prompt. As always, we'd love to read your responses and don't forget Alan's kind offer to read and respond to submissions. You can email poetrynonstop at gmail.com or submit via the website. Thanks to everyone who joined in NapoRimo during April. I've read some great poems that have come out of those prompts. I hope to share more of those soon, but I'll leave you with one sent in by Will Ingrams, who not only contributed a prompt, but sent in a poem every day of the month. 
This was from Daisy Thurston Gent's prompt to write an ode. Hope you enjoy it and keep writing. I was thinking about subjects that I could praise and my memory brought back a journey I made in a small boat between islands in Fiji. It was a hot sunny day and the, the ocean was blue and I was amazed at the flying fish that appeared out of the waves and arced across the boat or in front of us and travelled quite long distances over the uh, tops of the waves and back into the sea again. So I decided to write an ode to a flying fish. Ode to a flying fish. Emerging through sea skin, you streak like a missile, a bright silver dart over fidgety waves. From up on deck ten, you're a track scored on glass, but down here in a dinghy, you sail past my nose. You're a marvel, a startling conundrum, escaping the marlin and tuna that chase in your wake. You vanish, how startled and cheated they'll feel as your getaway glide arcs you far from the fray. It's not safe here either, I have to inform you. This bright airy world has its predators too. If you land in a boat, they will capture and cook you and celebrate fortune that brought you their way. Life's a flight from the hunter for most of Earth's creatures, but yours is spectacular, thrilling, unique.